This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. The novel The Family Chow takes us into the heart of a messy and complicated Chinese-American family living in a small city in Wisconsin. Their family restaurant is beloved, but we meet the family behind the restaurant at a point of crisis, a crisis that has been building for years. This is Lan Samantha Chang's third novel. In addition to being a brilliant writer, she has also been the director of the Iowa Writers Workshop since 2005, and she is with me now. Hello, Sam. Hello, it's so great to be here. It's wonderful to have you here. And it's so great. It is book release day today. Today is book release day. So congratulations. <laughs> and it's also Lunar New Year. Is that a coincidence or was that a plan? I think it was a plan. I do. <laughs> All right. Well, happy Lunar New Year as well. I hope the year of the tiger is, is a great year to release a book in. I do too. It's supposed to be a very dynamic, changing year. All right. Well, we'll we'll see. We could use some dynamism and changes, yes. <laughs> I think, this year. So I, I would love for you to introduce us to the family chow. And I think the best way to do that is to read from the very beginning of the book. And then we can talk a little bit more about these individuals that make up a fascinating family. Oh, I'd love to. For 35 years, everyone supported Leo Chow's restaurant, introducing choosy newcomers by showing off some real Chinese food in Haven, Wisconsin, bringing children, parents, grandparents, not wanting to dine out with the Americans, not wanting to think about which fork to use. You could say the manifold tensions of life in the new country, the focus on the future, tracking incremental gains and losses, were relieved by the fine chow, sitting down under the dusty red lanterns, gazing at Leo's latest calendar with the limp-haired Taiwanese sylphs that Winnie hated so much. Waiting for supper, everyone felt calm. In dark times, when you're feeling homesick or defeated, there is really nothing like a good steaming soup and dumplings made from scratch. Winnie and, Le and Big Leo Chow were serving scallion pancakes decades before you could find them outside of a home kitchen. Leo, 35 years ago, winning his first poker game against the owners of a local poultry farm, exchanged his chips for birds that Winnie transformed into the shining, chestnut-colored duck dishes of far-off cities. Dear Winnie, rolling out her bing the homemade way, two pats of dough together with a seal of oil in between, letting them rise to a steaming bubble in the piping pan. Leo, bargaining for hard-to-get ingredients, Winnie, subbing wax beans for yard-long beans, plus home-growing the garlic, greens, chives, and hot peppers you used to never find in Haven, their garden giving off a glorious smell. You could say the community ate its way through the Chow family's distress. Not caring whether Winnie was happy, whether Big Chow was an honest man, Everyone took in the food on one side of their mouths, and from the other side they extolled the parents for their son's accomplishments, heaping praise upon the three boys who grew up all bright and ambitious, who earned scholarships to good colleges, commending them for leaving the Midwest. Yet everyone was thankful when the oldest, Dago Chow, returned to Haven, Dago coming home to his mother, moving into the apartment over the restaurant, working there six days a week. Dago, the most passionate cook in the family. Despite the trouble between Winnie and Big Chow, everyone assumed the business would be handed down fairly, peacefully, father to son. Now, a year after the shame, 
the intemperate and scandalous events that began on a winter evening in Union Station. The community defends its 35-year indifference to the Chow family's troubles by saying, no one could have believed that such good food was cooked by a bad person. That's one of the best lines in the book. <laughs> no cool. one could have believed that such good food was cooked by a bad person. That's Lan Samantha Chang reading from her third novel. It's called The Family Chow. And let's dig into these characters a little bit. Big Chow or Leo Chow, the yes. patriarch of the family. Tell me a little bit about him. Okay. He was the first character I dreamed up when I started thinking about this book, a tyrannical, patriarchal Chinese family man. Um He's just a real piece of work. And I think that one of the things that people know about this book is that it that basically he dies in the in the, in the course of the book. Right. He it's it's make right it. there on the book flap. Right. You, it's <laughs> you okay know to it say going this. in. <laughs> he doesn't make it, but like the interesting thing for me is that you realize why basically anybody could have have wanted to kill this guy. He was just insufferable. He was funny and even charming, but just really, um, really inappropriate, uh, politically incorrect. Um, and self-centered. Self-absorbed. Yeah. <laughs> self-absorbed. I, I was having murderous thoughts about him <laughs> myself. Just he, he's, he hurts people. Yes, he, he does. Yeah. And seems to take delight in it. Yes, he does. <laughs> All right. So that's the father of yes. the family, Chow. And then the mother, Winnie, is a really unusual character, I think. Right. Winnie. Okay. I have this entire life story of Winnie that I tried to put in, but I didn't, you know, spell it out. Basically, Winnie is this person who, when she was a young woman, like very passionate, like full of adventurousness, very, very generous. And the word generous... um, means that, I mean, what I mean is that she was always interested in like giving emotionally and also feeding people, which is one of the reasons I think that she was working at the restaurant with her husband for so many years and basically making it work, making the whole restaurant, you know, focused and and successful. And and, and making people feel nourished when yes. they came in there because of that that generosity. Yes. But the problem, Winnie's problem for me is that um, she sort of comes to the end of her generosity when she realizes that things aren't exactly the way that she had thought they were. And she's just worn out. And her husband is really kind of hard to handle. And and she was really in love with him. But I think she decides to take a more drastic – she makes a drastic decision. Um, when her youngest son goes off to college, when he moves out – I mean, this happens sometimes in people's lives. But she moves out when James – leaves home. She moves to a Buddhist nunnery. She moves to this sort of religious order of women who are living in this small town in their own space, sort of like peacefully, you know, living without men at all. It's like she gives everything up. She's like, forget it. I'm I'm giving away my stuff. She leaves her car with her husband. Right. Um, so she's she, not just leaving the marriage. She's right. leaving everything. She's leaving, yes. She's living the leaving the life of desirousness. She even says goodbye on some level to the family dog. 
and she goes to live in another place. So I am curious about the spiritual house, and and maybe let's talk about the sons of this family oh, okay, before okay. we get there. But we'll we'll talk more about the spiritual house, okay. which is where Winnie goes to live in this small Wisconsin city, and they do have three sons. Yes. So you mentioned Dago, the yes. the oldest son, and he was kind of the the golden child of the family in a lot of ways for a while. Yes. <laughs> um. He was he was you know big. You know he grew nice and tall and big and strong and handsome and he's talented he's musically gifted he's got a big personality but he leaves home and he kind of fails to thrive it's like they brought him up as this oldest son you know the the big deal son and and this is you know basically something that happens um in traditional asian families the oldest son is considered the important one but he fails to sort of go into the world and make something of himself and that is a really interesting contrast for me. I mean, it's interesting when a, when a child who's raised with expectations that are essentially sort of those of an Asian family goes off into a world that's essentially a you know world of Western culture and cannot find a foothold there. He goes home, his father says, with his tail between his legs. He goes home and he works for his dad at the restaurant, which... He thinks his dad enjoys that just because he's there to kick around now. Right, right. Although it can be seen as him going home to save the family restaurant as well. (laughs) Yes. No, I think he is going to save the restaurant. And the other thing about him, I think, personally, is that by the end of the book, you realize that he does actually sacrifice in a way that would be befitting of an oldest son. He does something for the family. The second son is Ming. And he has thrived in material ways. Yes. He's very wealthy. He's very successful, lives in New York City. Right. He fled his Midwestern roots and upbringing. He fled the family, the Chinese family, and he became Mr. Manhattan. Right. And he fled his Chinese-American culture, too. He did. He fled all of that. He doesn't want to date women who are Asian, for example. He he has some issues. I My personal issue... With, I mean, my personal theory about Ming is that he's sort of got a middle child issue. I'm a middle child myself. Um, it seems to me that he's hung up on the fact that he was not given the attention as the oldest son, even though he finds himself to be morally, intellectually superior. He definitely <laughs> finds himself to be superior yes. to everyone. And well, we we only have a minute before the break. Oh, okay. but, so let's talk a little bit about James. Yes. He's much younger. So he's kind of removed from these brothers. Yes. And yet they they both at least seem to want what's best for him. <laughs> right. James is a sort of a sweet kid. He was raised not only by his parents, but by his brothers. So he's more Americanized than the other kids in the family. And he's very sweet. He wants to be a doctor. He wants to be a good boy, go to medical school. This is where he starts off at the beginning of the novel. All right. So these these three brothers all together, <laughs> they come back together because... Uh, it's winter this, break. It's winter break, exactly. Yes. And they're they're just about, I don't know, there's so many elements building to this crisis moment in cold, snowy Wisconsin. And we will talk more about all of those elements in a moment. I'm talking with Lan Samantha Chang about her novel, The Family Chow. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe, and I'm talking with Lan Samantha Chang about her novel, The Family Chow. And, all right... We've met all of the individual members of the family chow. We've got the overbearing patriarch. We've got the matriarch who has kind of removed herself as she's long suffering. And we have these three brothers with so many issues <laughs> to deal with. And and this father that is making their lives miserable in so many ways. And this book has a lot of different inspirations. But, but one inspiration is... Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Yes. How did that come into your brain that you wanted to to write a book inspired by that famous novel, but place it in a small city in Wisconsin? Right. With Chinese American right. characters. Um, it started, gosh, 16, 17 years ago. I was teaching undergraduates, and one of my students was a Russian literature major and loved the book, and I was embarrassed that I hadn't read it. So I sat down and read it, and I just loved, loved it. Right around that time, I moved to Iowa City and became director of the workshop, and I I was so interested in that book. It's like when you find a book you really love and you just wish there was someone to talk to about it who had read it. I basically made my students, well, not all of them, but I, I ran a volunteer sort of book club for this book that we called Bookshop, where um, students would sign up and say, I promise to read this over Thanksgiving break. And then they would show up and we would talk about it for, you know, two, three hour sessions or however long it took. Um, And I did that twice. And the book became sort of metabolized in me, where it was always there. I just loved it so much. And my students loved it, too. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And it's actually, it's very dark, of course, being Dostoevsky, but it's also quite funny. It's funnier than his other books. <laughs> well, it wouldn't take a lot to be funnier than Crime and Punishment, which is <laughs> the only Dostoevsky book that I've read. Right. And and I will say, not having read Brothers Karamazov, I did not find myself, I feel, at a disadvantage in reading this novel. I don't think it's a prerequisite. No, I, no, I, I mean, what I had to do, at some point I was really stuck. I didn't have a project and I had written a bunch of pages in this perspective that was interesting to me with a patriarchal figure at the center. And then in maybe 2013, I was chatting with one of my workshop students because, you know, it's always interesting to talk to my students. He said, you know, he always likes to pattern what he was doing on another great work. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, gosh, I wonder what would happen if I did that with this. And that's where it started off, really, in a conscious way. I threw out a lot of the first hundred pages that I'd written years before about something else. And I started over consciously thinking this book is going to be in conversation with the Brothers Karamazov, the thing I had to do was to stop reading the Brothers Karamazov because it was impossible to have that in my mind without, you know, and not think that my work was just completely inadequate. It's such a masterpiece. So I basically didn't read the book for six years, five or six years. Um, And And during that time, this project took off and became its own thing. And that's why you can read it without having read the archetypal book. Now, you also share some autobiography with the family child in that you grew up in Wisconsin in a Chinese-American family, which... (laughs) 
Did you did you have any any struggle thinking maybe I shouldn't put a Dostoevsky novel into <laughs> Okay, so basically what happened was I realized that in Dostoevsky and authors who write the way he does, I had found my literary forebears. I I I found them because the family I grew up in uh you know it was an immigrant family. Um we had four girls, not three boys. And my father was like a very larger than life person. I mean, he lived until he was 97 and a half. He lived through so many different revolutions and changes and, you know, cultural invasions, wars, etc. Um, he just had a really big personality. and He was quite loud. And the other thing is he was quite, I mean, he was bossy. He was just one of these people. My sister said that either you capitulate to him or you don't. It was like there was no in between. He just knew he was right. Um, and I, wa- I grew up watching my sisters deal with this. My oldest sister fought head on, and I remember that. And then the next sister, also they had a lot of arguments, but she would also do things like climb out the window when he told her not to date boys, you know. Uh-huh. And then there was me, and I just sort of ducked, hoping that he wouldn't notice that I was secretly disagreeing with everything he thought. But of course he noticed. Of course he was annoyed with me. Anyway, enough about my dad. I, you know, love my dad. I'm, you know, he died while I was writing this book. Um, very pleased to have reached the age of 97 and a half. Uh, so, gosh, what what really happened was um, I think that when I started writing fiction, I came to the workshop in an era when it was believed that, quote, good, unquote, writers didn't use very many words. It's really hard to describe this, but you can but see it. But a very spare style. Yes. yes. I see that. You can see it in Strunk and White, omit needless words. Right. It was like they took that idea and moved it like way to the, you know, way in one direction. So adverbs were out, definitely. I mean, they're still out. <laughs> Adjectives, definitely out. Metaphors, out. You know, um, exclamation points, forget about it. Uh, everything was supposed to be understated and like really, really fine tuned. And mm-hmm. the fact is, there is great writing like this. I mean, Raymond Carver, Ernest Hemingway. We can think of all of these people and Beatty. Um, but, but I did not grow up in a family like that. And so when I wrote my first book, it came across as an. Uh, it was sort of these book. It was a book about immigrant lives. And it was kind of understated. The people in the book were suffering and they were low key. And I remember one story where I was trying to have the father and the older sister fight, but I couldn't write it. And I remember struggling over it and thinking there's something wrong with this, but what is it? Why is this not coming out the way that I remember or want it to be? And it's been years since that time. But I feel at this with this book, I've what I've done is go in the direction of Instead of writing a book with immigrant lives of quiet desperation, I went for the noisy desperation because that's actually what my family was like. And Dostoevsky (laughs) freed you to do this? (laughs) Yes, because he breaks all of the rules that you're told to follow in most creative writing workshops. He uses, I think the original Brothers Karamazov, one of my friends looked it up. Um, It has like more than 2,000 exclamation points in it. So pages and pages and pages of dialogue. Like I had one teacher, not at Iowa, but I will say, and is now passed away. 
Jamaru, who told me that you should have 10 lines of narrative for every line of dialogue. And in, in the Brothers Karamazov, this is flipped. Everyone is talking and yelling and arguing and, you know, just just going on and on, carrying on and on verbally. And so I just felt, I think I'm going to just take a page from that, try to write more freely, write about life as strange as I feel it actually is, which isn't entirely realism. It's not realism in, in, in that sense of the word. And it's been hugely fun. It has been such a blast to write this book. Well, and these characters do leap off the page and and resonate. And, you know, obviously this is not <laughs> I, I neither grew up in uh, in Russia, Dostoevsky's Russia, or in a in an immigrant family in the United States. But these these people just really resonate. And there's a there's a moment where I feel like you start to go Dostoevsky dark. <laughs> and that's that's with Ming, the middle oh, brother. Yeah, Ming. And yet it, it's so contemporary and just he he's talking about his family. And he has complaints about every member of the family. Absolutely. And they have, in his opinion, messed up their lives beyond repair. Yes. He's the only person who can see the truth. Yes. But also it doesn't matter because they've screwed it up so badly that there is no redemption. Yes. And I felt like I feel when I'm on Twitter. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I know people who seem to think that they're the only people who can see the world clearly and everybody else is wrong and stupid. Yes and backwards and it's just messed up beyond any comprehension and that's where Ming took me so it was <laughs> it was very very contemporary and yet that also is a way that you feel when you read Dostoevsky oh that's so interesting I mean I I don't have a whole lot of perspective on this I know what I did but I can't see how it it's working out but I'm glad you really <laughs> got that from it I'm glad you did there's also actual social media in the book which is hilarious because I'm not on social media I mean, it's not exactly it's it's online stuff right there's a right. blog there are blogs and, yeah and and things go viral and all kinds of interesting things are happening and so of course we know that the father is going to die at the beginning of the book. We know this. And it doesn't happen until at no. least halfway through. It's exactly in the middle of the road. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I kept thinking, oh, something's just about to happen. And then, no, <laughs> not that. Um, but I am curious. I mean, you've been working on this novel for how long? Um, I started writing it in 2000. I, I mean, okay, the earliest sentences in the novel were things I wrote in 2005. Okay. But I did, I threw out, as I said, most of all of those early parts. And then I also wrote another book in 2008, nine, published in 2010. So, I mean, I really started focusing on this six or seven years ago, but it's been in the percolator for more than 15 years. Uh, and the reason that I ask is because, of course, in the last two years, uh, we as a nation have become more aware of prejudice, Asian American prejudice or prejudice against Asian Americans in this country and, and with some really ugly, hateful things in particular that have happened in the last couple of years. You started writing this well before that, <laughs> but also you grew up Asian American in this country. So I'm sure you know a lot more about it than than many of us do. And the characters do have memories of being bullied and, and being called names and being othered because of their cultural status. Yes. Um, this is 
I don't know how to address this exactly. I feel that I feel that Asian American history is filled with instances of discrimination, prejudice, and hatred. And it's just one of these things. I grew up during a time when I think our country appeared to be relatively calm. Um, but I remember in high school, Vincent Chin was murdered in Michigan, which was my neighboring state, um, because people thought he was Japanese, which is really complicated. <laughs> um, he was a Chinese man. Um, it was during a time when people in around Detroit were very upset with the Japanese auto industry. Right. Um, I've always, I've always assumed that this is a part of, of our history and, and personal experiences of Asian Americans. So, um, but, so I put it into the book, of course, from the very beginning, but I am aware that people weren't writing books. Hmm. I would say people were always writing books about this subject, but that not until recently have people been aware of the books. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, the so much of what we see happening with this family, as as one of the family members is accused of murdering Big Chow, Leo, yes. the, the patriarch of the family, we see this murder trial take on a life of its own and uh, people getting very personally invested. And, you know, this is, of course, something yes. that we've all witnessed in our yes. culture. But there is a particularly anti-Asian thread running through this with, I, I don't want to give away this plot point <laughs> because I, I think oh, that... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I would say that part of the anti-Asian thread in the in the trial is caused by the lawyers because they're trying to tell this story, their sides of, you know, they're trying to represent their side mm -hmm. and they're using tropes to do that, that sort of make people respond with sense a sense of, I recognize that Asian thing, you know, in a, in a stereotypical way. Yeah. So that's one of the big things happening in the second half. I tried to describe in the book, the first half of the book is the drama of the family itself and how they see each other within the community. And then the second half is really about what happens when their drama becomes kind of exposed to the world and the larger community. And that's when a lot of these issues come up. The Asian American community, and I mean specifically Chinese American community within this town that they live in, it is also really fascinating the way that, <laughs> that you have painted this. Because, of course, it's not a lot of people uh, who live in this community right. with, with Chinese origins, but they are bound together because of this shared cultural identity. Yes. And, and bound together in some really confining ways for, for some yes. of the individuals. Yes. yes, I think that's I think that's true. Um but in other ways they support each other. They have their leaders or they have their, you know, characters who take on certain roles within the group. The Chow family always has a Christmas party. There's I mean, I grew up in a town like this. There were when we integrated the town where I grew up, my sisters and I and my parents. And then Eventually, more Chinese families, Chinese-speaking families moved into the town, and we all got to know each other, and we started having New Year's parties on New Year's. Today is the year, you know, the first day of the year of the tiger, for example, but that we would be having a, a potluck 
and people would bring their best dish. And, you know, there was a little Chinese school that kind of failed because people like me weren't actually doing their homework, but, but they made an effort <laughs> to carry on the culture and to be yeah. part of a community. So this that that part of the book resonates with your personal experience? Yes. Yes, it does. And the we only have about a minute before the break, but the spiritual house oh, yes. that, that Winnie goes to, um, it's a it's a small religious community within Haven, Wisconsin. And it's in an old school building. I can just imagine this really unpleasant <laughs> environment. But I, I am curious about where the idea for that came from. So that's a work of the imagination. And it basically comes from um, two things. My grandmother was a devout Buddhist, and she belonged to a a temple in Manhattan, in Chinatown, that I've, I've been to and I've seen it. But then when I started doing research for the book, I, I went around Chinatown and realized that a lot of the temples are not as serious as my grandmother's. They're basically community centers. And that's when I realized, oh, I could have like a sort of fly-by-night makeshift community center of a spiritual house. I'm talking with Lan Samantha Chang about her novel, The Family Chow. More in a moment. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe, and I'm talking with Lan Samantha Chang about her novel, The Family Chow. And I wanted to ask you... We've talked a little bit about the evolution of your writing and really feeling like you found your voice through this process. And I'm so excited to see what comes in the future because <laughs> of that. But what an what an interesting you've you've written beautiful works. You've been writing for a long time. You teach writers. What is it like to have that kind of epiphany and evolution? At this point in your career? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I would say that it wouldn't have happened to me in the way it did. I wouldn't have this book if I hadn't been teaching at the workshop. Mm. Because the students that I work with are just so bright. You know, they're so talented on top of it. And they're always thinking and processing and changing. And, you know, the the story is that a critic wrote that a literary generation is 15 years. And that means that I've been at my job for an entire literary generation. And when I think about it, I can see how much writing has changed in the last 15 years. Um, I feel that sort of going through that process along with my students year by year helped me change with it. Um, That's one big thing that I'm very grateful to my job for is that I have this exposure to like brilliant people and I get to enjoy their company and conversation on a regular basis. So teaching, I know that a lot of people think that teaching is sort of a like time consuming and draining influence on writers. And I think it can be, but it can also be a really inspiring, exciting thing. And, you know, um, I think that uh, I'm really, okay, I did not expect to discover a new voice 
in the middle of my life. And I'm really grateful that it happened. And I'm also grateful that it happened because I was so busy. I feel especially grateful that I was able to do it in the middle of all that busyness as a parent and, you know, working full time um, and having a job that requires me to think about other people's lives. I'm grateful that I was able to somehow, you know, be given this, uh, I don't know, gift of, of, of generating new stuff. How, new... how did you do it? I, I can't imagine it? finding time to write this novel in the midst of all of that. Well, in terms of generating the new voice, one thing that happened was I broke one of the rules that I'd always been telling my students to do. And this happened, as I said, in 2005 when I was reading, you know, I was not even teaching at Iowa right at the end of 2005 yet. Um, I, I started writing in the present tense. Again, I had handed out essays. I had told them, like, the present tense doesn't exist. There is no way that something can actually be unfolding as you're reading it, and so it just doesn't exist. Okay, that is true. But <laughs> but there, I really fell under the sort of, I don't know, sed I was seduced by the voice of the present tense because of the sense I had that it was unfolding all around me like life does. Um, I was in the middle of life and my life was changing all the time in subtle and unexpected ways. And everything seemed to be a surprise, uh, which I hadn't expected because when I was younger, I thought that adult life happened when everything just kept going over and over. Right. Um, but instead, adult life has turned out to be one surprise after another. And so the present tense sort of loosened me up and enabled me to try to imagine myself into a situation where everything was a surprise. Um, the Brothers Karamazov feels that way. Like when you read the first two thirds of the book, um, it's, it takes place over about three and a half days or something like this. And everything that happens is described. So he's, the character's walking down the street. The character stops and gets some food or sees his brother you know, upstairs in a restaurant and goes into the restaurant and has a meal with him. Then the brother says this. Okay, that is that is the way the brother's Karamazov unfolds. And it, it worked really wonderfully with this discovery of mine that it was indeed okay to write in the present tense. Indeed, it was pleasant and fun. And and it just opened up this sense of surprise that I wasn't expecting. And for years, I've wanted to write fiction that feels like it's larger than the fiction that I started out writing. It was just a goal of mine in the back of my mind. Um, and somehow increasing the sense of surprise, um, increasing the emotional scope of the of the characters, like widening the amount of emotion they were allowed to express and feel um, really, really changed my work. And uh, it no, it was a, just a huge pleasure. Like, you know, it was my secret pleasure because officially I'm the director of the workshop and I have a child and I'm theoretically, you know, driving her to violin lessons or whatever. But like secretly, I have this other life. And the pleasure of having that secret life became inspiring in and of itself to be able to just have this part of my life that nobody really cared about. Like nobody cares if the director of the workshop is actually writing because I'm supposed to go to meetings and <laughs> and things like that. Well, actually, I was going to ask you about that because being the director of the workshop, which you know is larger than life itself, it is. Does that place pressure on you? I would have guessed the opposite. Not that people didn't care, but that anything you wrote had to 
you know, be of this caliber that that might be difficult to reach. Yes, I agree. I have felt that pressure. But, you know, there's a certain sort of self-disgust that comes into a writer that comes into my mind when a long time has passed and I haven't written something. And I go to go to this place in my mind, in my mind, I must, in order to get work done, go to the place where I believe that no one will ever read it. And I don't know if I felt that way about this piece. Um, The novel I wrote before that I never imagined anyone would ever read because it just didn't seem like public work to me. But this piece, I felt like if I don't try as hard as I can, um, I will regret it. You know, I've reached a point in my life where it's not like I can redo my life. I will regret not going all out with this book in a private way. And if it turns out that it gets exposed to the public and, you know, it's a giant disaster, it'll just have to be that way because at least then I can tell myself I tried. And I think that every writer reaches this place where they acknowledge that what matters more is just trying to do it. Um, and that if it's a failure, the best way to go into it is knowing that they tried. Well, this, <laughs> this is not a failure. Uh, <laughs> the has, has going through this changed how you think about teaching writers? Because I, I realize yes. that the teaching writers is a, is a different kind of thing than many kinds of teaching. But tell me more about how, you, how uh. it's changed your idea. Well, for one thing, I no longer tell people not to write in the present tense. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it just made me aware of how long it can take and how strange and mysterious the process is. And even though there are a lot of students who graduate from the program and are immediately, you know, a household name, there are also a lot of students who go on their own particular paths and end up coming to writing from many different directions, other directions. And so... Uh, There's also this sense of trying to be patient while a book is in process that I think everybody experiences. Um, And I think that I I try even harder to keep that in mind now that I've gone through the process of writing this. So in a way, I feel less hands-on than I used to be. Interesting. Yeah. The dedication in the book is to another literary giant that that many people knew and loved in Iowa City, James Allen McPherson, Pulitzer Prize winning essayist and Professor Emeritus at the Writers' Workshop when he passed away in 2016. Why did you choose to dedicate the book to him? (laughs) When I was at the workshop, in the middle of this period when everyone was trying to write like Raymond Carver, Jim always was interested in all kinds of work. And I remember that he, for example, was interested in ghost stories, which people thought at that time was it was kind of like a sort of low interest of, you know, if you wanted to write ghost stories, people thought you were not serious or literary enough. Right. But he inspired me to write ghosts into my first collection, Hunger. And I, you know, I just always felt like Jim was open to whatever people were doing. He was also a very funny guy. And a lot of his jokes were not politically correct. And like in that way, I think he really would have enjoyed reading Leo about Leo. And (laughs) I think he would have liked Leo. And so I I feel like he was sort of sort of guiding me as I was writing this, um, reminding me that it was okay to be funny in ways that weren't particularly savory. What did it mean to you as a young writer to have someone like him 
as a mentor, someone that you could look up to? Because I'm sure many students feel the same way about you now. Well, I don't, you know, it's funny. I think about my young self and I think that I was sort of oblivious to a lot of what was happening around to me. You know, I knew Jim was important, famous, revered writer, distinguished, Pulitzer Prize, MacArthur winning writer. But I didn't, I don't think I actually sat down every time I, I don't think I went into his office and thought, I'm walking into the office of this revered, you know, person. I think I saw him in some ways as an older male sort of paternal figure to a certain extent. My guess is, I mean, when I think back, Mm -hmm. I felt that way about him. Um, He had this wonderful, uh, he was just otherworldly in some ways in that he, he really didn't care about the outside world. It's hard to explain. Like he, he lived a really sort of private and interesting life of his own. And I think as a role model, he was excellent in that way. I'm starting to think that one of the ways writers learn from each other has nothing to do with the teaching of craft. In fact, for years, I've been wanting to write an essay called Against Craft. Um, I feel like one of the ways that we learn um, from other writers is by watching how they negotiate and navigate life. Mm. And at the workshop, you get to bring a lot of people together to negotiate and I, navigate life. Exactly. I think that's one of the reasons the workshop is, is so um, such a success and such a powerful experience for so many people who come here. I do think that is one way in which the pandemic has not been great. Um, all the students are fabulous, but I wish they had more time to hang out with everybody with yeah. you know in a in a real relaxed congenial food oriented setting <laughs> <laughs> well i i've also been thinking about how uh, and you said something in an interview that that i watched about um the 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 things that make a writer a writer and needing to have suffered a, a little bit and it does make me think about the last couple of years we've done a lot of suffering as a culture, I mean, obviously, some people much, much more than others, but it's been a difficult time. It has. And for creativity in the long run, that might be a very good thing. It's very possible. Very possible. I mean, Flannery O'Connor says that by the age of six, you know all you need to know to become a writer because you've gone through all the you've gone through, hum, you know, human pain, joy, Um, you know, all of these feelings. But I do think that the prolonged experience that we've had as a culture in the last couple of years is, you know, very formative, very formative. It makes me think a lot about what, how it's changing the generation that you and I are both raising right now. Oh, yes. That's something that will be remain, (laughs) remains to be seen. Right. Um, I, I was thinking about I've interviewed Sandra Cisneros, another very famous graduate of the Writers' Workshop, and she talks about the time when she was at the workshop as being a very isolating time because she, you know, was was very much a minority at the workshop. And the workshop has become a much more welcoming and diverse space, turning out some incredible authors of so many diverse backgrounds. Is that been part of your mission as the director to make it a more vibrant and diverse and welcoming space. Yes. Um, I remember being at the workshop in the early 90s. I think 
uh, there were very few writers of color in the program at that time. And I think that our society was also different at that time. One of my goals has been to make sure that the program reflects our larger society um, so that there are many stories being told in the program and um, that the people coming from the program are not simply, you know, kind of a monoculture. I want it to be interest. I want the, them to be interesting to each other. And I want them to influence each other's work. And I want their work to then tell the stories of the people in our country and in the world. And um, that was, it was necessary to, you know, make it clear to people who live all over the country that Iowa was a cool place to come. <laughs> uh, and I think that's happened. I think that, you know, many people applied to our program from all over the world wanting to spend two years in Iowa City. And I think they learn a lot when they get here. I can't even imagine what that's like to try to select the few that will get that opportunity. Right. I'm in the middle of doing that now, and I was just thinking the other night, this process is so complicated. It is, you know, it's it's a real it's a real karmic issue. I feel like my karma undergoes like kind of a, a negative dive every time I sign a rejection letter. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. And, and the seeds that you sow in the workshop, sometimes they, they, you know, fruit immediately. And sometimes many years down the line, you get right. to see the fruits of that labor. Right. You can never tell what'll happen. It's all really fascinating. I'm very lucky to have this job. Land Samantha Chang. She is director of the Iowa Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, and her most recent novel is The Family Chow. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. You can find more information about what we're reading and when we're reading it at iowapublicradio.org slash book club. I'm Charity Nebbe. See you next time.